When I was a kid, um, I was fascinated with uh, optical illusions um, and, uh, you know, a drawing that you, at first glance, when you look at it, it looks like a young woman with her head turned away. Um, you know what I'm talking about? Maybe you've seen this picture. And then you, you blink your eyes and you look at it from a slightly different perspective and all of a sudden you see, well, it could be an old woman hunched over. You know, it, it could be either and it kind of flips back and forth based on your perspective, um, or, or pictures of staircases that just seem to be never-ending or constantly changing based on your perspective. Sometimes they look like the stairs are ascending, and sometimes it looks like they're descending. Um, and, and so there are lots of these optical illusions. I think probably that one of the most simple optical illusions is, is called the Necker Cube, uh, which you've probably doodled on your paper at some point. You might even Feel compelled to do it right now. I don't know, uh, but it's uh, it's that transparent uh, three-dimensional cube that you can draw on your paper, and you look at it, and it appears to be facing one direction, and then you blink, and all of a sudden it appears to be facing the other direction. Right? It changes based on your perspective. And in James chapter one, verses nine through twelve, it's as if James is writing to us and. I think what he's saying is he's saying, I want to give you a different perspective for seeing your trials, for the way you view your trials in this life. Um, And if you can get this different perspective, um, it, it changes everything. It changes the way you see the whole story of your life and what God's doing in the midst of the trials. Um, And so to challenge our perspective, our way of seeing things, James gives us two case studies in the passage that we read. Two case studies of contrasting trials. Poverty and wealth. And and right away, that has to be a unique perspective. Right? Because poverty is a trial, and we can all kind of understand that. But what James is saying is he's saying wealth can be a trial too. And we have to ask the question, from what perspective can wealth be a trial? But, you know, we're going to talk about that. But but here's what's great about these verses. James is also giving us clues in these case studies. Clues on how to see all of life from the perspective of the gospel. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three things together this morning. How poverty can be a trial, how wealth can be a trial, and how to use the gospel perspective in our trials. Poverty, wealth, those being trials, and then how to use the gospel uh, to view our trials in this life. So first, how poverty can be a trial. Um, That word lowly that you see in in the first verse that we read, um, it can mean poor or insignificant um, or unimportant. And James didn't elaborate on it very much. Um, just one short verse compared to the two verses he, um, he spent on the wealthy. And like I already hinted at, I think the answer is pretty simple as to why that is. Um, see, arriving at the perspective where lowliness or poverty or insignificant, insignificance is a trial and to see it as a trial Um, that doesn't take a huge stretch of our imaginations. It's just kind of like, um, yeah, poverty is a trial. Um, Lowliness is a trial. Of course it is. 
You know, a, a significant refrain or, or chorus in our study of James chapter 1 has been this. Um, just because all of us in this room will inevitably face trials in this life. Just because we'll all inevitably face trials in this life doesn't mean that trials will inevitably grow us up into mature, complete, and whole people. Um, The key for James from the beginning has been how you handle the trials that come into your life. And that's why he wrote in verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may become perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. And he comes back to that same chorus That same refrain in verse 12 of what we read this morning. Blessed is the man who remains, what, steadfast under trial. So see, here's what's going on. For James, if you're steadfast, that is if you are unmovable and unshakable because your identity is anchored to Jesus, life's trials will grow you up. Trials will come into your life and they will begin to change you. And you'll find yourself growing in humility and strength and confidence and joy and hope and compassion and empathy and on and on we could go. But if you aren't steadfast, James is saying, that is if your identity isn't anchored to Jesus, but instead is anchored to any of life's very fragile circumstances, then trials are going to come into your life and they're going to shake you to the very core. right? And you'll find yourself becoming hardened. You'll find yourself becoming anxious and bitter and self-absorbed in life. right? So, and it's not hard, I think, to see why and how loneliness, loneliness specifically can be a significant trial, right? The word itself, lowly, is a hint towards it. Um, It's a very descriptive word for us, for what James had in mind, being impoverished and insignificant and all those things. Because when you're lowly, you're constantly having to look up. Right? You're looking up at your friends and your neighbors, uh, the people you go to church with. You're looking up at the kids uh, in your class at school. Or you're looking up at the parents in your kids' class. Uh, you look up and they seem to be free of trouble. Right? They're wealthy materially maybe. And you're struggling to keep the lights on. Or they receive recognition. And somehow it seems you keep getting passed over. Or they seem to matter and you feel so insignificant. Or, or they went to, be, to the beach this summer for a vacation. And you haven't had one in five years. They just bought a new car. You just bought new duct tape to hold the headlight on kind of deal. Um, Listen, when we're lowly, we're constantly looking up. And if we aren't anchored to Jesus for our identity, it is so, so very easy for all of us to nurture the seeds of envy that lie deep in our hearts. A great writer by the name of Joseph Epstein, um, he wrote a little book called Envy. And I love the first sentence of his book. It's one of my favorite like opening sentences of any book I've read. He, said, he wrote this. Of the seven deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. 
And yet you have to think about it just for a second because, yeah, lust and anger and gluttony and even sloth have their momentary pleasures, but envy just makes you miserable, right? It makes you anxious that you're missing out on something, right? You're angry at the happiness of others. You're despairing that you don't matter. It just keeps you miserably self-absorbed. Only envy is no fun at all. And Epstein, very insightfully in this little book of his, um, he called envy a kind of Rorschach test, right? You know the Rorschach test, the ink blot test, that you're supposed to look at this ink blot and then you tell what you see and then the psychologist is supposed to come along and be able to discern your deep fears and underlying thoughts and motives and all that stuff based on what you see. But listen, Epstein offers this Rorschach test with envy. He just says this, tell what you envy, say out loud what you envy, and you will reveal a great deal about who you are, about yourself. See, if you feel lowly, poor, insignificant, looking up at the world, and sensing the growing bitterness and anxiety and anger and self-absorption in your heart, you have to ask yourself this question. What or who am I envious of? And what does your envy reveal about your heart? That you think, if only I had more of that, then I would feel secure in this life. Or you think, if only I got that kind of recognition, then I would be significant and have significance. If I only had fill in the blank, then I would be happy. Then I would be content. Then I would be whole and my life would be complete. Some of you in this room, you really may be struggling to keep the lights on. And uh, and you feel yourself to be at the bottom and you know what it is to be constantly looking up. But I've got another question for us because I, I don't think that's the majority of us in this room. And we have to think about this, that if you're a part of middle class America, you're actually in the wealthiest 1% of people who have ever lived on the face of the earth. And I can tell you that, and for like a good minute, um, that might challenge our perspective a little bit and might even make us feel a little bit guilty. Um, But just give it a day. Um, And it'll wear off, right? It'll wear off. Um, Because even though we're in the wealthiest 1% of people who've ever lived on the face of the earth, by Monday afternoon, you're going to be feeling lowly again. And you know why? Because it doesn't matter who you are. There is always someone you can look up to in this life. Right? Always someone that has more. If you earn $50,000 a year, you know someone who makes $75,000. If you earn 100000 you know somebody who makes 150000 And millionaires feel poor next to billionaires. You make it to the beach for a vacation only to find out that your neighbors now want you to watch their cat while they go to the Caymans or something like that. Um, you succeed in your career or you achieve a certain level of recognition, there will always be more rungs in the ladder to climb. Right? What I'm saying is envy doesn't confine itself to any one social class. I'm asking, do you feel lowly or insignificant or unimportant? 
Tell what you envy, and you reveal a great deal about yourself. Where you have put your hope. What you have anchored your life to. Alright. Second, let's talk about something that's not as easy to see. Something that begins to challenge our perspective a little bit more. And that is how wealth can be a trial. A couple years ago, there was a a fascinating article in the Atlantic Journal. um, and, And the title of it was, Why Luck Matters More Than You Think. And the author wrote about a term that psychologists use called hindsight bias. Um, And it's a description of our tendency to to think after the effect that certain events or outcomes in our life were inevitable. um, or, Or that they were predictable even when they weren't. Um, and if the word luck causes you a problem, just think providence, okay? It, it, it's, very, it, it's very easy for us. It's very easy for us, after a successful outcome in our lives, right, to think, to begin to think that we were successful primarily because, primarily because of something special about us or some uniqueness about us, or our talent, or whatever. We worked hard enough, or we were innately gifted in such a way. And we don't credit Providence what family we were born into, what country we grew up in, what zip code we lived in, what education was afforded to us. Right? We don't think about all of those things, the opportunities that just happened to come our way, and on and on the list could go. All the things we had zero influence and control over, right? We don't see the thousand little factors of providence that lined up just so in order for us to succeed. Michael Lewis, um, incredibly successful author, uh, he wrote books like The Blind Side, Moneyball, The Big Short, which all became movies. Um, But his career was launched uh, by his first book, which was called Liar's Poker, which described the reinvention of Wall Street in the 80s. Um, And he has written very candidly about the luck involved with his success. Um, Listen to what he wrote. He said, all of a sudden people were telling me I was a born writer. He writes, this was absurd. Even I could see that there was another, more true narrative with luck as its theme. What were the odds of being seated at that dinner next to that Solomon Brothers lady? Of landing inside the best Wall Street firm to write the story of the age? Of landing in the seat with the best view of the business? He says, this isn't just false humility, it's false humility with a point. My case illustrates how success is always rationalized. People really don't like to have success explained away as luck or providence. Especially successful people. As they age and succeed, people feel their success was somehow inevitable. In other words, hindsight bias. It's constantly at work in our lives trying to reinterpret the events and outcomes of our lives, right? As a product of our ability, as a product of our effort, as a product of our self-sufficiency. From James' perspective, we're back in James now. From James' perspective, this is the real trial of wealth. Right? The real trial, like James is saying in verse 10 and 11, is, is to not see your utter frailty in this life. To not see your glory like the quickly fading beauty of the flower. The real trial is to take pride 
in what we consider our glory and ability or our self-sufficiency. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 12. Um, Look it up, read it later, it's very short. Um, It was a story about a farmer who had worked really, really hard and he had been... Uh, and, and he had stored up all of his goods, right? And he had this, he had a great portfolio, a very healthy 401k, right? Um, and so he kicked up his feet to enjoy the benefits uh, of this good life that he had created. And Jesus, in that parable, he gives us insight into what was going on in that man's heart. He, he actually let us hear the farmer's internal self-talk. And this is Luke chapter 12, verse 19. The farmer said, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry, right? But God called him a fool in that story because that very night, his soul would be required of him. See, he lost James' perspective that he was just a flower of the grass and he was going to fade away and all his wealth too. Jesus warned the listeners to that story. This is what he said, take care and be on guard. Think about what be on guard means. It means to be hypervigilant. Right? It means to be alert. It means to pay careful attention. It means to be suspicious of your motives and your attitudes towards your wealth. Why be on guard? Because the greatest trial of life is to feel like you have no trials in life. And the greatest trouble in life is to feel like you have no troubles in life. And the greatest spiritual trial is to feel like you have no spiritual trials. Wealth can be a dangerous trial, Jesus is saying. He's saying be on guard. You know why? Because it can sneak up on you. Right? It can catch you off guard and unsuspecting. One day I was um, watching National Geographic Channel and they were videoing this cute little red salamander thing uh, that was floating along in this creek. It was just getting carried along by the current in this Creek, and it was just, just this harmless looking little salamander. You know, it was tiny, it was soft, pliable, cute looking, all that kind of stuff. Nothing menacing about it. And the camera um, then got off of the salamander and it showed uh, down the creek a little bit this huge old frog sitting on the bank of this creek. And, um, and as soon as that salamander floated to within striking distance, that frog pounced, right? Pounced, and in one gigantic gulp, just swallowed that little salamander up, right? And it was, and you know, it was HD, and they backed it up slow motion like 12 times. It was awesome. Um, and, um, but it wasn't the most awesome thing that, uh, that was a part of that little clip. Um, what was awesome was the 30 seconds after that frog had ingested that salamander, hole with one gulp. It climbed out of the, uh, or hopped or whatever they do, out of the creek, back onto the bank, right? Um, And then within 10 seconds of getting back on the bank, that frog was dead. 
He was dead, and then the narrator comes and tells you that this cute little red, you know, pliable, soft salamander has this poisonous coating on its skin. And the moment that frog took it in, it was over. Ten seconds later, that frog was dead, and then another ten seconds later, that salamander pushed its way out of that dead frog's mouth and got back in the creek and just floated on to his next thing. It was brilliant. So the question is, are you on guard? And are you suspicious enough of your success or your wealth in this life? Have you seen how little you have actually had to do with any of your success or wealth in this life? If you can't see that, you're like the frog. You are blind and unaware of James' perspective. But the greatest trial in this life is to feel like you have no trials and you've swallowed the poison and you don't even know it. And listen, since this is poison and because it's so hard to see, let me just give you one little indicator here, one little litmus test to tell if you've taken the poison in. And just come back very briefly to that article in the Atlantic Journal, because I don't have time to get into the details, but the author cited a number of, of studies by social scientists over the past 20 years. And, to use, and here's what they consistently find, that those who see their lives from the perspective of gratitude, to use their words, those who see their success and, uh, and wealth as a product of luck in this life, in study after study, they are 25% more, more generous with their money, with their time, and with their attitudes towards others, who th- towards others than those who think that their wealth and success is a product of their hard work or talent. Surely you've heard these statistics before. Across the board, those who earn $25,000 a year give away 4% of their incomes, while those who make $100,000 or more give away less than 1% of their incomes. And James is telling us why that is. So here's the litmus test. How generous are you? And if you aren't being generous, what does that reveal about your perspective and your attitude towards wealth? All right, finally, we're going to talk about how to use the gospel perspective in our trials I'm going to limit myself here just to two big applications. Um, There's more for sure that we could get into, but these, I think, are really, really important. Okay, so here it is. James is telling us first that the gospel perspective lets us see farther than the present. And then second, that the gospel perspective lets us see through the lens of paradox. All right, first, the gospel perspective lets us see farther than the present. There is a day coming... When the lowly will be lifted up. There is a day coming when the wealthy will be brought low. That's verses 9 through 11 that we read. But James also wants us to look farther than the present in verse 12. To see and to view this crown of life that God gives to to the people who love Him. Right? I I turn 44 in a couple of weeks. Um... And I'm coming to this uh, midlife realization. Um, 
not a full-blown midlife crisis, uh, but definitely a midlife realization. Um, and, you know, it, it's kind of like, I used to be, when it came to like aches and pains in my life, uh, in my body, I used to think, give it a couple of days, it'll get better. Um, now it's like, guess I'll be living with that from now on, you know? Um, uh, I have maximized on my iPhone all of my fonts to old people size, right? Um, I, I, I'm a couple of months from having to use reading glasses up here, I think. Um, I, my doctor just keeps nagging me about my cholesterol that seems to be rising. Um, and I've got arthritis in my neck. I've got degenerative discs in my back. The basic headline is I'm falling apart rapidly uh, in front of you. But, but, you know, as I think about that, I think you add to that in your midlife um, this dawning realization that there will be so many things in this life that at one point I thought I would get to do. And now I'm realizing... I may never get to do those things, right? There are things I wanted to accomplish in life that I just may not ever get around to. Um, There are places I wanted to visit that I'll probably never get a chance to go to. There are things I've wanted to see that I may never see. And um, and here's what I'm saying. The gospel perspective that James is talking about here, this is what keeps me at a midlife realization and not a midlife crisis. See, the crisis comes when you can't see farther than the present. When all you see are the bits and pieces of life that are irretrievable to you and lost to you. Missed opportunities and missed relationships and coming and, and counting up all of the losses and regrets that you have in this life because that's all you can see. But listen, God has promised a crown of life, of life to those who love Him. He has promised a new heavens and a new earth to you. He promises a day beyond the present when everything sad will come untrue, when all the wrongs will be righted, when everything broken is going to be mended. And if that's true, and God assures us that it is, then you aren't going to miss out on anything. I mean, the future is brighter and fuller and more meaningful and and. And more wonderful than you could have ever dreamed possible. And if you get this gospel perspective, guess what? You can remain steadfast, as James says in verse 12. Unmoved and unbroken in your trials and unshaken in your trials. Because you know this life isn't all there is. And it's a gospel perspective because this is the promise of the resurrection. resurrection. That Jesus lost everything, right? He was homeless and impoverished. Foxes had holes and birds birds of the air had nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay His head. He lost His friends. He lost His reputation, fastened naked and dying to a cross. Right? He lost His life, but He rose again to assure us that if we come to Him, even even death itself is going to be softened to a sleep from which you awake. I mean, have you ever noticed that this is how the biblical authors talk about Christians dying? That they just go to sleep? Right? Why is that? Because this life is not all there is. One day, someday, if you are anchored to Jesus, 
you'll wake up to a new heavens and a new earth where everything sad has come untrue. All right, second, the gospel perspective also lets us see life through the lens of paradox. I've been dropping that word paradox for like two weeks now because it's a favorite literary style of James. And this is a real game changer. You remember when we were kids and, um, and we would get those, those sunglasses that, uh, that were like tinted a certain tint, like red or green or blue? They were like terribly unprotective, I'm sure, like magnifying UV rays into your eyeballs. But, but we loved them as little kids, or I did anyway, because you'd put these glasses on and then all of a sudden you would see everything in the world through that tint of red or blue or green or whatever. The gospel perspective, it gives you a lens of paradox like that. It allows you to see everything in life differently. Let you see how two things that seem to contradict each other can both be true at the same time. Right, verse 9, James wrote, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Right, he's saying if you're facing loss and poverty and insignificance, if you feel like you don't matter, look at yourself. Look at your life through the lens of the paradox of the gospel. And if you do that, you can take pride in your exalted status. What exalted status? That you are a son, that you are a daughter of the king, and so great is his love for you. That He delights in you so much that He considers you to be such a treasure that He would send His only begotten Son into this world to rescue you through His death and bring you into His family. The paradox. James is saying, though you are poor in this life, you are rich beyond imagination. The Gospel perspective lets you see your true value and your true worth despite your feelings of insignificance and loss in this life. Then he tells the rich in verse 10 to boast, not in his riches, but in his humiliation. What should you do if you're wealthy or successful? James says, see your life with a gospel perspective. See your life through the lens of paradox. That though you are rich, though you are important, though you are significant, you need to see that you're just a creature. Right, Though you might be powerful and wealthy and affluent and influential, remember this, that the, the most important king, the, most wealth, the wealthiest emperor, the most powerful ruler who has ever walked the face of this earth has no more value than the poorest beggar who ever lived on the face of this earth. To save you, God himself still had to reach into the dust and the ash heap. Can you see how James is telling you to use the gospel in your trials? How the gospel gives you a particular perspective no matter your circumstances. G.K. Chesterton, a favorite author of mine, late 19th century, early 20th century, um, he wrote that a paradox is a truth standing on its head shouting for attention. James writes, the poor rich, the rich poor, He's calling for it. You've got to think this out. How can that be, right? Can you see your life from the perspective of the cross? Because if you can, there you will see your true poverty. To rescue you, nothing less than the death of the Son of God would do. But if you can see from the perspective of the cross, 
you will also see that at the same time, God so loves you, so treasures you, so delights in you, so values you, that He Himself was glad to die for you. Do you you know this? I'm just going to end here. You know, James could have chosen from any of life's contrasts. Here is his case study. Loneliness and companionship. A long married life and unexpected bereavement. Health and sickness. Joy and sorrow. Hope fulfilled and hope disappointed. No matter where you find yourself or what the trial is that you're going, on, going through today, James is saying what you need, what we need, is the gospel perspective in our trials to see farther than the present in them. And to see and to rejoice and see the gospel paradox in them and in the midst of them. Let's pray together.